We are DB. I am Brenton, joined as always by Danielle. That's me. Thanks for joining us this week as we count up the IMDb's best movies of all time and discuss some of the greatest films you mightn't ever have seen. This week, rated as number 19 on the Internet Movie Database by millions of film lovers from around the world, is Seven Samurai. Released in 1954, Seven Samurai is an epic samurai drama set during the Sengoku period in 1586 in Japan. Now, to describe the setting more, you have to understand the samurai. As most of you know, were well-trained, well-respected rank of the Japanese military, which existed for over a thousand years, coming to an end at the end of the 19th century. They're characterized by their discipline and strategizing skills and the use of katana, which was the very long, sharp Japanese sword that they use, Uh, and the Sengoku period in Japanese history, which in comparison was happening at the same time as the Renaissance in Europe, which you don't really think about, do you? Um, When you're watching this, you're like, oh, it could be whenever. But this was in the late 1500s. It was a time of like... 150 years of political and military conflict, which was sparked by the Civil War um, in the mid-15th century in Japan. That's a long time. It is. um, It gives you a little bit of exposition going into it, and it's not necessary for the main story. It gives you some idea as to why there's bandits raiding a farmer's village in the first place, but it doesn't have a a big uh, impact on the story. It's just sort of a... Uh, an idea as to when it's set and why there would be samurai everywhere. Seven Samurai was based on an original screenplay that was co-written, edited, and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Now, let me paint a picture here. What what, what do you know about Akira Kurosawa? Nothing. Have you heard of him before? No. Because I certainly had, but I didn't know the context or the works that he had done or the time that he was working. Um, mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, that, that rings a bell. Um, In case you've never heard of Akira Kurosawa, he directed films from 1943 to 1993. And to say that he was one of Japan's most influential people, not just as directors, is quite an understatement, really. Um, It's safe to say that every person who is listening to this has seen something that was directly influenced by something of his work, really. Um, Among other awards, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy Awards and was named Asian of the Century by Asian Week magazine and CNN. Holy crap. Being among the top five most prominent people who contributed to the improvement of Asia in the 20th century. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, Another one of these five people was Gandhi, who helped, like, liberate India. So he's, he's kind of a big deal. His work is noted to be some of the most reinterpreted and influential works ever. Um, mm-hmm. I, was, I was trying to think of something that would be on the same sort of level where it's been reused so many times and people refer back to him as a genius of his field. It's very similar to Shakespeare, I was thinking. Yeah. Where those stories have been retold and they're timeless just at the core. And I would put Kurosawa's work up there with that, um, like uh, Star Wars. The first one is essentially the exact remake of Kurosawa's 1958 film, Hidden Fortress. And people really? Don't, don't really know that. Like, the lightsabers are the samurai. Darth Vader looks like a samurai, even with his helmet. And we will be talking more about A New Hope in three weeks. That one's on the list at number 22, I believe it is. 
And we also spoke about A Fistful of Dollars um, when we spoke about The Dollars Trilogy by Sergio Leone when we did the episode on The Good, Bad and the Ugly. Oh, that's right. And that's a that's a cowboy western remake of Yojimbo from 1961. Um, and so was that uh, Bruce Willis movie from the 90s called Last Man Standing. Um, but I'd recommend just, just watching the Sergio Leone western style instead of that one. Uh, and some of the many examples of Seven Samurai that were remade was the cowboy western remake The Magnificent Seven from 1960, the 2016 remake of that, Battle Beyond the Stars from 1980, The Seven Magnificent Gladiators from 1983, Samurai Seven from 2004, and even A Bug's Life from Pixar is loosely based on the story. What? Which I definitely picked up on because the story of Bug's Life is there's these bugs that are having to collect food for the grasshoppers. And the grasshoppers come back every time the, the crop is good. So Flick, I think it is, the ant that goes yeah. out and he recruits warrior bugs to come. This is, it's essentially the exact same plot line. And they hmm. have a big battle scene at the end where they're trying to ward off the bandits, which is exactly what happens in Seven Samurai and Bugs Life. So the point That's is, his, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Um, his work is very influential, and you wouldn't even know that something of his is, is Kurosawa's, but um, he's crazily influential. Um, I was very excited to watch this one um, because I know of his work and I've, I know of this film. And this, this is essentially why we got into doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's films like this where it's like you have to watch this at least once in your lifetime. This is a must-watch. And I never would have gotten around to watching it if we hadn't done the podcast, which is exactly why we're doing this. Yeah. It's not because it's a Japanese movie or it's a black and white movie or anything like that. It's because it's three and a half hours long. It's more the time restraint than anything that puts me off uh, watching these sort of movies. Well, that was exactly what was putting me off it. We were kind of putting it off, putting it off because we've had a particularly busy week (laughs) this week. And you sat down, you know, we're thinking, oh, we'll just, we'll sit down and watch. And you said, Danielle, it's three and a half hours. I said, you've got to be shitting me right now. Like, it's, it was a big commitment. And I want to say this movie blew my expectations out of the water, out of the atmosphere and into the next galaxy simply because. So you liked it. I loved it. And I'm just saying it was nothing like what I was expecting because when you think of typical 1950s American cinema, this is not that. Yeah. You know, it's not just the fact that it was Japanese. I think it's the fact that it's Kurosawa. Like, he just... The cinematography was wonderful. I was sitting here... And I mean, I think the version we watched was remastered a little bit, so the frame rates were, like, they were really good. They might have sped up the frame rates, but the rest of the quality looked like you were watching film, not digital. The fact that the use of shots, the way it was written, the way the actors acted were not stereotypical of what I've become used to for movies from that era. It seemed a lot more natural and like it, did it seem was natural. something from the quality of today. Yeah. I found it extremely captivating considering the circumstances because it is it's a foreign language film. It's black and white from the 1950s set in the 1500s and it's three and a half hours long. And it was captivating as all hell. It was surprising how much I was interested in and I knew I would be, which is why I was excited 
to to get into it. So before we go any further, we're going to break this down as the first bit, the non-spoilery section, we'll be talking about the film and Kurosawa's work and how he directed this and what stood out as the little motifs. And the second half will be the spoiler zone where we're talking about the content of the film and the storylines and what happens during. Next week's episode, just a side note, is on David Finch's movie Seven from 1995. And as special guest on that episode, we had director and host of In Love With The Process podcast, Mike Pecheon, to talk about it. And he's very passionate about that, as you'll hear next week. But we mentioned to him during that conversation, we recorded it a couple of weeks ago just because of scheduling issues. We had mentioned to him that we were going to do Seven Samurai as the episode before Seven. It's a little confusing because they both have Seven in the name. And he was very excited about that because he's just a lover of film. And he gave us his insight as to the movie to prepare us because Danielle and I had never seen Seven Samurai. Um, And we mentioned that to him. So we're going to play a clip from next week's episode just to give you some insight into Mike Pecci's take on the film. Because it gives some really fantastic insight from a filmmaker's perspective into why Kurosawa is actually you know, such a fantastic director. And we think it would be helpful for our listeners to get that insight as well. And it's a bit of a taste as to what you can expect next week. Next week's episode will run a bit long and we will explain that more then because we did go on quite a few tangents and we talked about movie industry as a whole and David Finch's direction for that film and how he he went about making it. Um, So if you're wanting to listen to more of that, Tune in for next week. Otherwise, here's what he had to say about Seven Samurai. Um, I haven't seen it, but I'm just, I'm really excited to see it because I know how influential that has been to a lot of things. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you've never seen Seven Samurai? No, I haven't, not yet. Okay, all right, here we go. I'm not going to ruin it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to ruin anything for you, but I'm just going to set you up, okay? Yep. Kurosawa is the master at blocking... A. Now, if you guys don't know what blocking is, it's literally organizing where the actors land in the frame and how the camera moves around them. Master at blocking. B. Watch how he, he uses the elements. Watch how he uses fire. Watch how he uses wind. Watch how he uses water. Those are really big things. And then just watch how he uses extras to tell the story. There's so much there's so much detail here. If you watch this movie like that, because a lot of folks are gonna look at it and go, it's a black and white movie. And you're multiple generations back where they're like, I hate black and white movies. And it's a black and white movie that have subtitles. Oh, I hate black and white movies with subtitles. No, no, no. Fuck that. Mm. If you thought 12KM tells you stuff visually, this movie is gonna tell you everything you need to know before you even read the fucking subtitles. I love that. It's so exciting. And the reason I got off on a tangent here is that. He's a huge influence if you like Star Wars, if you like yeah. anything from the 80s, like anything Spielberg's ever done. Every time they remake that movie, they can't get close to what the original is. And think about it. The shit that they have to do in movies right now, whether it's CGI, like putting tons of CGI in, putting fucking tons of exploding buildings, putting in tons of camera moves, tons of fucking edits just to keep us interested in these dull fucking stories that we're watching. He does all this stuff with a camera on a tripod and maybe on a dolly, maybe on a crane, but a camera on a tripod. Yeah. 
watch that knowing that and just sit there and go, why is this scene so fascinating to me? He hasn't even edited yet. There hasn't been a cut in the scene. The actors have literally moved in front of the camera, started on a wide shot, actor walks close to the camera for close-up, and then walks into a two-shot, and then moves out into a wide shot again, with no cuts. So, watch that movie, thinking about that. Now, I think Mike brings up quite a few good points in there, which I hadn't really noticed until I watched it, obviously, because while he was saying yeah. that, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I don't really have any context. But now that I've seen it, he's absolutely right, because there is some things in there that I did sort of pick up while watching it. Listening back to it retrospectively, he hit pretty well every nail on the head. You know, to listen to what he said and then think back to watching the movie, everything that he mentioned is very evident if you know to look for it. And he also mentioned something that I hadn't really been aware of was the use of elements. Now, he uses fire and water and wind in a particular way that I I noticed during watching it, but I'm like, yeah, you're absolutely right when I listen to it back again because there's a, quite a lot of night scenes, I believe, and they mm-hmm. don't seem very dark. Now, I don't know if they, because it's black and white, it's kind of hard to tell if they filmed it during the day and just lit fires. I don't know. It, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, there was good use of the fire at the end there to convey the passage of time. Yeah, showing it burnt out and things like that. I can think of quite a few scenes where they had, I think there were signal fires. There's also a lot of use of wind storms. That I thought was interesting because I was wondering, you know, how did they do that, first of all? Well, I think it was to build tension. Now, if you think about it, there was more use of water at the beginning when it was building up to it. Um, And then you see more wind when they're getting ready and preparing for for the climax at the end. And then while you're at the end, there's a lot more fire. So it's a transition between water and fire. Um, And there's a scene there where it just shows the rain on the fire. Was that after the battle? That was just before. Okay. Because then remember it got all mucky. Right, yeah. Yep. There was slip sliding all over the place. So maybe there wasn't more use of water at the beginning then. Maybe that was just Adam talking to my ass. No, there was because there was the streams and there was when he was shaving in the river and stuff. Like, because water represents peace, right? And the fact that they flooded the field and everything. So there was a lot... Nothing had happened yet. So that's a that's a very interesting... Subtle motif that he's used there. Yes. Because it's subconscious, right? It makes it feel more authentic, almost, to have those use of elements during those subsequent periods in the plot. So, I agree with you. I think we should have some leeway to the fact that we can't really remember or pronounce some of these old Japanese names, so we're sorry about that, but we're going to be describing the actors and the characters rather than giving their names sometimes because it was a little little difficult for us. I, I made reference to when we watched The Godfather, I'm like, they're all Italian. They all kind of, like, without meaning to be offensive, things, they, yeah. they all kind of sound the same if your ear is not tuned to the language and those names, so... Those we do remember, we'll try to say properly. There's a couple of main ones, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that this movie, Seven Samurai, is one of the best ways of storytelling at its core. Oh, it was so good. And for a movie that's three and a half hours long, 
has an intermission like an hour and a half in, just like Godfather 2. Um, it's the first half is all set up. It's showing you what the farmers are and the bandits and the characters, and they're looking for other samurai before it even gets to like yeah. really anything. And yet it's still captivating as hell. Yeah, I was. There was not one point where I was bored watching this movie. I was interested the entire time, and like we said, it's a long movie. And there are probably quite a lot of cultural cues that we missed subtly because we're not Japanese. I don't know much about Japanese culture. There's probably a few little things in there that we we just didn't get. Yeah, yeah. So I noticed a lot of the men, most of them actually. They were bald on the top of their head, but purposefully bald. Yeah, like they like had long hair even, everywhere else. Like even um, the young samurai, he looked like Friar Tuck from Robin Hood. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I think even at the beginning of the movie, he had a full head of hair and then he shaved it. So I'm not sure. I think. I'm not sure what that was about. I looked it up and... The reason that I could find is because it keeps their head cool when they wear their helmets. So it doesn't overheat them during battle. Okay, and I was wondering about the... Because f- the farmers all, too. Um, I think they were just g- going bald. I'm not sure. But that's that's the only explanation. I could be wrong um, as to what I found. I'm not sure what the helmets were made of. Steel and leather, probably. Maybe the farmers, it was for their rice hats. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, I think it was generally very easy to follow, considering the circumstances. Surprisingly so. It's, it holds up really well in that way. Like you said, better than a westernized movie from the same time. Like, you watch an old Clint Eastwood movie. It looks old. The way they act dates it. The way you they know act, I mean? yes. There was actually very good acting in this. Surprisingly amount of good acting. Um, it was, like you said, believable and realistic. And wasn't dependent on language. Yes. That's a huge thing, is that these characters, you could pick every single one based on their facial expressions, their movement, the tone of voice, the way they talked. And like Mike said, you didn't need to know that they were speaking Japanese and you didn't need... I mean, it was helpful to have the subtitles, but you could still peg all the characters based on the way they acted. You know what I mean? Yeah, you could tell who someone was just by their presence in the scene and the way that they were acting that. Um, Yeah, going off what Mike said about that, uh, I think some of the more brilliant scenes are the ones where there is no dialogue. There's just Mm. purely watching what's happening because it's storytelling through the shots and the acting and the body language rather than any language or sound at all. And I think that's, it's it's showing, not telling, and that's very good storytelling technique that a lot of filmmakers today just pass right over. Do you have any specific examples of scenes that convey that really well? Well, even the one of the opening scenes where I really wish I remembered his name, the main samurai, he cuts his hair off, and a lot of the the townsfolk are just watching, and they're just trying to understand what what's going on. And that was so immersive because the farmers, they weren't from that village and they come up to the women and they're like, what's going on? And I'm like, yeah, because I kind of want to know too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know what was going on. Well, yeah, because whenever I'm in a movie and I say to myself, I have no idea what's going on, 
the actors and the characters in the movie do know, and that leaves me lost. I'm like, well, I'm lost now because I don't understand. But the parts of this movie where I'm like, I don't know what's going on, the characters don't either, and they ask each other, I don't know what's going on, and it adds to it. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm meant to feel this way. It's done purposefully, if that makes sense. It makes you feel like the director took your viewing experience into consideration yes. and tried to enhance it. Every little thing that's on screen for a three and a half hour movie is done for a specific reason and it's done really well. Like everything that's in a shot is done specifically for a reason or to make you feel a certain way. And I think that is, that's so difficult. That's so much work. (laughs) And there's some, they're not really long unbroken shots. Like The Revenant had some freaking long unbroken shots. Well, it's difficult because they were working on film. Yeah, but for for what they were working with, they did quite a good job and there were quite a few examples. Like I'm thinking about I think it was Kukichiu, the funny guy, was running around drunk in the yeah, hotel. Yeah, I was thinking is is it Kukuchio? Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? I think so. Yeah, and later on you see that character um he's trying to tr- like train the farmers. And there's unbroken shots of him just walking up and down and being charismatic and, like, interacting with them. And some of those must have been difficult, too. Mm. I really quite liked that character. I really grew on that character. And I think it's essential to have someone like that who's kind of the comedic element, but he's also kind of smart as well. He was, like, he was pretty much the lovable underdog. Yeah. is kind of where he fell into, but also the clown but again, you feel like the samurai do when they first see him. Your first interaction with this character is that he's a drunken oaf who's who's stolen someone else's identity. He's pretending to be a samurai. You don't really have much respect for him. But as the movie goes along, you feel like the other six. He really proves himself. Um, in terms of you grow to see, okay, this person can do this and he can do that. It's just, it makes you feel that way. Even before that, when they're walking to the village, they thought he, you know, finally gave up and stopped following yeah. him. And he's like, it's funny. I kind of miss him now. And then he jumps out from behind a tree. He's like screaming you know? and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was actually, he was really quite smart in the way that he strategized some of the plans. And he gets the upper hand on a few of the bandits put towards the end there, not to spoil anything. So I, I really quite like that character. And I think it was essential because... Some parts of this movie was actually really quite funny. Like, he added the well-needed comic relief that wasn't over the top, which it would have been if it were done today. I found that this movie, the acting was very natural. Yes. None of this seemed put on for me, which I wanted to really speak about and make note of the fact that American cinema from this time period was very, very scripted. And, like... It was almost like a bad stage show. Yes, it, well, because that's what they were coming from. Yes. They were used to stage acting, then they were trying to do stage acting on film, so they were very dramatic, and they'd have the violence, and, you know, the women would be hysterical. That they added in here. I think that was, like, across the board, but whatever. But, you know, people would be like, <sighs> throw their arms up over their face and, you know, fall down dead and yeah. whatever. Like, there was a lot in this that I think wouldn't have flown... In an American theater. Like all the naked butts everywhere? I was going to say all the ass, <laughs> first of all. I think it was very clever and very subtle the way he did this, because I don't know if you know this, but at this time, it was very, very 
frowned upon to do kissing in movies in American cinema. So there wasn't was there any kissing in this? There was one that okay. you don't really know if they were kissing or making out or what it was. It was just an embrace. And you couldn't really see much, but you could infer enough. And it was, that's what I'm talking about was very, very clever mm. because he was conforming to cinematic standards while still telling the story that he wanted to tell. Yeah. Because when, when you see kisses in some of those old Western movies, my Nana always said this. She's like, they just press their lips together. That's not a kiss. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you just kind of press your faces together. Um, because that's all they were allowed to do. It was distasteful. Yeah. So this was done in a way that still got it across, but wasn't at all distasteful. And just the way that Kikuchio, the way he acted, in America, there was a lot more slapstick over witty humor. This was yes. witty humor. Yes. So this was very atypical for that time in American cinema. I really appreciated it. There was a little bit of slapstick, but it was minimal. It was, it was where it was due. Like, yeah. it made sense where they put it. But more of it was, you know, play on words and which cool that that translated over um, and just, you know, being sarcastic and stuff like that. It was quite well done. Did you want to even do spoiler free? Yeah. OK. And you want to get into it? I want to get into it. OK. OK. We're getting to spoilers now. Which means that we're just going to be talking about what is this about? What's what's the content? Yeah. <laughs> I want to do a little bit of a plot overview. So... Basically, the premise of this movie is that there's a farmer's village that keeps getting attacked by bandits. So there's a civil war going on. So there's, you know, rogue people going around taking advantage of the political situation and robbing and burning villages. So these villagers are scared shitless because it keeps happening to them and they've got nothing left to give. So they go to their, their elder in their village and he says... The villages that don't burn are the villages that hire samurai. So these men go to another village, the men of the town, and hire samurai to help them fight off these bandits. And that's basically the story. And then the rest of the movie is them fortifying the village as best they can and strategizing. And a lot of it is strategy. Um, they do things smart because they're outnumbered, right? You've got a bunch mm -hmm. of villages which are untrained and not warriors. And then you've got seven samurai who are there hired uh, well, they're kind of not hired because they're not even paid. I think they're just getting paid in, in some rice, which was valuable, That's, but... I wanted to make a note about that, right? So there's a couple cultural elements that I wanted to bring up here. So rice was incredibly, incredibly valuable in feudal Japan. And during this period, we're still when Japan was an empire, obviously. And people traded in rice. Rice was so valuable that it was counted by the grain and you see this because when yohai the old man god yeah. that guy's a good actor he was funny he spills the rice that they brought to the city with them to you know entice the samurai to to come work for them with he spills it on the floor and he's picking it up grain by grain yeah because it's that valuable you could sell a single grain of rice and it would be worth something. So that's something definitely worth noting. There's some Three Stooges-like characters who who are staying at this steam house where the village oh, yeah. men go. 
Yeah. Mr. He looks like Oscar the Grouch or something. He's got a unibrow and a furry face. He kind of looks like someone's like glued pubes to his face or something. It doesn't even look like a real be- <laughs> yeah. beard or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're funny because they're basically laughing uh, at the characters for like, yeah, as if you're going to be able to get samurai to come here when we don't have anything to give them. No one's going to risk free? their life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just going back to them leading up to the climax where they're fortifying the village. They put up a fence, they destroy the bridge, they have to say fuck it to the ones that are outside that perimeter, and they leave an opening like to entice the bandits in so that they have control over where that is. I think it's just it summarizes the samurai as brilliant strategizing, using their wits to control where the enemy's going and what they're gonna do. Um and I think that's portrayed really well. They're very smart militiamen. They were using the Highly terrain. trained. Yes. Yeah. The biggest thing that I probably didn't like about the film was uh, I think I would have enjoyed more of an introduction to the bandits because they were in there for like the first minute. It was establishing, oh, there are bandits that are raiding this village often. And it yeah. wasn't good for them or efficient to raid it before they had harvested their crop. Because... Like, the next two hours, like, you don't see bandits for the next two hours of the movie. It's all leading up, and you can see the fear in the villages, and it leads up to this climax where the samurai are defending against these bandits. I would have felt more if I had seen them do a previous raid, and I'm like, oh, these guys are skilled. Okay. These guys are smart. I don't know. There wasn't much there. I, as an audience member, wasn't really fearing them i don't know i would have preferred a bit of a better introduction to them there there wasn't any visual threat yeah they're just sitting on a horse and they look at it and then they walk away yeah and you also said to me you're like why are they waiting and i said well why would they want to do any more work than they have to yeah which makes sense they they want to steal the rice they don't want to harvest it you know just like bug life yeah (laughs) i was actually expecting the fight scenes to be better, I don't know. Um, not like not like they were bad, but I was expecting like some badass samurai moves, and that's probably my young brain who's used to these modern movies going like into Kill this. Bill. <laughs> yeah, like Kill Bill. Um, yeah, I was kind of expecting something like that. Now that wasn't the point of this film, which is why he didn't do it, and it's, it's yeah. also rated PG, so they they kept it PG. But that's not the point of this film at all. So that's why he didn't lean towards it. Um, It's just that was my expectation going into it because I'm used to that in modern film. And it probably would have taken away from it if if you had had those things in there. It was so interesting. You had one sword fight scene and it lasted one swipe. Was it the introduction to one of the samurai? Yes. And that was very tense too. You could sort of see Mm -hmm. what was going to happen and that's exactly what the main samurai said he's like well this is obvious i can see what's going to happen here and that's what he said he's like it's such a waste it's so obvious yeah you know and he was saying that he said it's such a waste because the guy who died was he could see the skill in him as well but it was very obvious who was going to win yeah it was just it was very interesting it was very insightful into the way that these military men were just as strategic as they were skilled and we've talked about that a lot very very much of this movie revolved around strategy speaking about that and sword fighting 
and what typical expectations around Asian military and martial arts and things like that, we both said to each other, these samurai don't look like what you would stereotypically expect samurai to look like. Yeah, they're not built like warriors. Like if this were they, today, they like, weren't. it'd be like these jacked guys with swords that they're flinging like around. Christian Bale and Batman. Yeah. These guys were a little bit short, a little bit stocky, some were even a little bit fat. Yeah. You know what I mean? But they were still skilled. Being a good samurai is not about that, though. And that's the interesting thing is because, so they go to the city to approach samurai to hire them to do this, to help them, the village people do. And you do see men, samurai, walking around who are more fierce looking, more proud looking, and they very immediately take a lot of offense to being asked to do this mercenary work basically for free because they're very proud. It's these other men who... They don't have anything to prove. No. The other men. They're not proud. They're not trying to convince you that they're good. They're not doing it for money. They're doing it for the honor and respect. Yeah. Which, by the way, is very, very important within the culture of being a samurai warrior. That honor is so deeply important that if one loses one's honor or shames oneself or family or regiment or whatever, they carry a very specific knife for ceremonial suicide to keep their honor. Yes. So it's kind of like having a cyanide pill on you at all times? Pretty much. And that's why I said I was like, what was going on? Because you see the head samurai at the beginning when he's shaving his head to go help that other village. I'm like, is he killing himself? Because that's what I thought. I thought it was a dishonorable thing as well. I'm like, did, did he do something... That he's like... The cutting of the hair in many cultures is something you do when you're shamed. That's a thing that Aboriginal people from Australia do when they're shamed, is they cut their hair. Isn't there a thing from Game of Thrones that every time you you lose a battle or something, you have to cut your hair? So the ones with the longest hair with the Dothraki, they have the longest hair, they're the best warriors. Um, So you have to cut your hair every time you lose. It's something like that. Um, that's and that's that's obviously fiction, but it's taken from real cultures. So that's exactly what I thought when I saw that. And that's again another th- cultural thing that we're like maybe there's a bit of a barrier there between us interpreting it because we're we're westernized. Isn't there a thing where like your sword has to be a certain ratio to your height and weight, like it has to be an extension of yourself? I would think that's just a practicality thing. And again, going off of western interpretations of eastern culture which isn't you know i'm acknowledging that i'm not saying i should do that but i thought these swords in this movie were very very long simply because of what i'd seen in kill bill right like the hitari hanso blades were much shorter and maybe that's because the people wielding them were all women like i don't know if that's had something to do with it but maybe it's a practicality thing like you're more nimble Yeah, like you see that scene in the beginning of the movie, of this movie. I think it's Rikichi, the the man whose wife died in the fire. Yep. Um, He goes up to one of the samurai in the city square and asks him if he'd be willing to help them. And this man throws him to the ground and he's holding this thing. And at first I thought it was a spear. And then I realized it was his sword. It was so tall 
Yeah. It was so tall. So I'm not sure. I There must be some sort of ratio. And you see, too, often these weapons are made for single slashes because even in the fight scenes, you see it's not like a medieval sword fight where you're like clang, clang, clang. Which all is essentially over the place. what Kill Bill did to that weapon, which is probably why they're shorter. It westernized the use of the katana. Yes, which in this movie would be much more culturally correct. Yes. The way he he displayed and conveyed it. Yeah, as opposed to Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. Well you see, even when they're they're killing bandits on the horses, it's one swipe and yes, then they're done. But it's precisely where they want it. Mm. It's like it's quality over quantity of your strikes. There's also the the mention of the Ronin. One of the guys introduces himself as a Ronin, not a samurai, which basically means that you're a samurai who doesn't have a master. And usually that means your master has died in battle and you're sort of wandering on and you're taking on whatever mentorship that they've already given you and um, you're not part of any group or military or anything. You're a lone samurai. That was the first guy they recruited, wasn't it? It was the guy who shaved himself. He called himself a ronin. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. I was kind of surprised because there was the raid on... I thought it was the bandits camp where they do the first raid just before the climax. But I think it was like the scouts camp, the the spies. I think that's who it was. And they had a lot of, yes. um, a lot of women there and they burnt the place down. Um, I was very surprised because the first samurai who dies out of the seven is shot there. And that's the first time you see guns or firearms. I'm almost wondering if that was a geisha house. What does that mean? Like a whorehouse? Do you know what? Pretty much. I mean, that's not what geishas are, but... um... So I'm like, it took me aback. It was like two and a half hours into this movie when you first see the firearms or the use of the guns and i'm like did mm-hmm. did he just get shot what, what just happened and then he died yeah um and then obviously they're they're talking about the guns for the rest of the movie there's the three firearms that they have to try and take which were basically like how many bandits 40 there was like 40 yeah to yeah, these seven okay. samurai um yeah. which are basically acted like old cannons where you sort of have to light it with a fuse uh, which is interesting because you see one of the the scenes where Kikuchio takes the second the rifle and he's sitting there with, with a fuse ready to fire it because these things take so long to load. Yeah. So I looked it up and um, firearms had come to Japan like 200 years before this. So hmm. I was way wrong. Um, guns have a really big, long history. They're a much older invention than I had initially thought. And I'm like, yeah, the samurai definitely would have had them. They would have been scarce, which they are. It reminded me of old muskets. Yeah. Is what it was. Like, you have to, you know, light the fuse and shoot it, and then you have to put the put the powder and then put the, the stick in and shove yes. the powder down and then put the musket ball. And the muskets that you're thinking about were probably 200 years after this movie was set. That's how primitive At these least. guns are. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so they definitely did still have firearms, but they were slow to reload and use. And to think, to think critically about this for a second... We shouldn't be so surprised because it was in Asia that fireworks were invented. Yeah, gunpowder had been invented in like the 9th century in China. Yeah. Yeah. So, there you go. I think this whole second half towards the end here, with the climax, 
would have been very difficult to film. Like there was a lot going on. And what Mike was saying, where he did a lot of it just on a tripod on a dolly and they, he just, it must've been so difficult to do back in the fifties with so many, so many things going on, so many action scenes and it's all on film. I just, it's a very impressive achievement in film to be able to even do that climax. Because you couldn't do a million takes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was very difficult. There was a lot going on. There were a lot of people to coordinate. And a lot of... He made note of the extras. There were a lot of extras in this movie who had a continual role. Like, there was the same group of townspeople who continually kept showing up, right? Yeah, and you kept recognizing them. Yeah. I thought it was so funny. The one scene I thought was hilarious is the one guy gets knocked off his horse and all the women come out and start beating him with like their yeah. pitchforks and stuff. <laughs> they had like pitchforks and things, yeah. Um well they were just they were just trying to defend themselves, yeah. Yeah. There's quite a lot of these shots that you wouldn't ever be able to do another take because mm. the they were using the fire to burn down the houses and the way that everything's set up to even reset a scene you have to like reset the the film in the camera it's just it's brilliant that he was able to achieve this and this is why this is studied you know well and that's something that i even just forgot about i'm like man they burned down three buildings actually more yeah. than that six more than they that. burnt down six buildings just to film the burning well down. you would have had to have built the entire village anyway and that fence was quite impressive to try and build yeah and then towards the end there, I was trying to think how many how many actually died. That last scene was really a shame because that final bandit, like the lead bandit, killed the last two samurai in like the last few minutes. And it's like, fuck, you know, like you really feel for them that they've been trying to get rid of these bandits the whole time. And Kikuchio dies right at the end there because he gets like shot. right, right at the end. Yeah. And... But fuck, man, he's a he he stabbed him though, didn't he? Yeah. Well, that was that was one moment where you could see these bandits were like, "This guy's insane." Well, they even killed Yohai, didn't they? Yeah, they did. The old the little guy. old man. Yeah. He was such a good actor. He always had this look on his face, like like he it was he was about to wet his pants. He always <laughs> looked so scared and yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. It's just those were the two characters that I felt a connection with the most and they died within the last few minutes and it's like just like fuck you know like you you feel for it and by the time the sun rises you just feel like you've been through this epic battle all night and because the movie's so long you sort of feel for that length as well i think the youngest samurai's name is uh kitsushiro or something like that he says right as the battle ends he said he was so angry and he broke down in tears. He said, all the enemies are dead because he wanted revenge for the last yeah. two deaths that happened in that last five minutes and he didn't have anyone to kill to avenge them. Well, because his mentor, the guy that he really respected, was one of the last ones to die as well. And he's just like, yeah. fuck, I want, I want to see this guy die again, basically. Um, yeah. And there's a really cool shot when it's the very last shots that you see Whereas there's three surviving samurai standing at the base of the grave hill, and you see mm-hmm. the four dead uh, samurai graves at the top there, and they've got their swords stuck in the ground. I think that's that was a brilliant shot to wrap this movie up. That one was particularly touching and strong. Overall thoughts and feelings. 
I think I've summed it up pretty well. I was very excited to watch this. It did not disappoint. It was a lot more captivating than I thought it would be for a three and a half hour movie. Um, and it not at any point was I unintentionally confused or lost. If I ever was throughout the thing, it was intentionally. And I really respect the way that this was filmed and the way that I was able to understand the story, like the storytelling behind it. And it was captivating as hell. Like you just, you feel for these farmers, you feel for these, there's only seven samurai and you have to ward yeah. off these bandits. It was, it was quite brilliant in every aspect. I've been really busy lately and so I I was going into this like fuck th- I don't want to do this like this is going to be so long and you know thinking about American cinema from the 50s it's not always the most captivating thing like I wouldn't want to watch Gone with the Wind again um, well, that was from that's the 30s. what I thought okay well okay bad example anyway <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that again um and I was totally totally blown away like you said there was not a moment where I wasn't completely interested in what was going on on screen they had my attention for the whole time you were very vocal because you were just like what's happening oh my god look at this oh my god look at this and then you're like was i oh oh is that what's happening oh my god that's what's happening and you you were just you were definitely engaged yes (laughs) because you were just so you were thinking out loud a lot um and you wouldn't do that if you were bored yeah if i was bored i'd be doing something else like cooking and watching or something but it was yeah you're like i'll put it in the background because i don't care yeah but you weren't you were just like let's do this and we we pretty much did it in one setting we went and had something to eat during the intermission but we did it as one setting yeah which impressed me and at the end of it because you know how sometimes you watch this really intense movie and you're like fuck i'm tired after this yeah i wasn't exhausted by watching this i was and it didn't feel as long as it was it didn't feel, yes, it did feel long, but it didn't feel three and a half hours. Return of no, the King it, is three and a half hours, and it feels like it. Yeah. And that doesn't have an intermission. <laughs> well, and it's got such a good balance of excitement and downtime and dialogue and non-dialogue and movement and, and space. And- yeah, like, it's just, this is really a masterpiece. What number is this? This is number 19. I almost think this deserves to be higher up on the list. Yeah. I think this is way better than 12 Angry Men. Yeah, which is from 1957, black and white movie that we watched. Uh, I think that's number five on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that, I enjoyed this more than The Matrix last week or Goodfellas the week before. I enjoyed it more than The Godfather. Like, I did. That's... Mm. Yeah. It's contestable. It's contestable. It's It's different. It's different. This is comparable to two or to twelve. I almost said two and a half men. <laughs> this is not comparable to two and a half men. Um, this is comparable to twelve angry men because it was a similar era, different sides of the world, but similar capabilities. This was way better. Mm. This, in my opinion, should have been in the top ten. I think it's just the way that the ranking system works on the IMDb as to why mm-hmm. uh, Twelve Angry Men. It's not a bad movie, not a bad movie at all. No, um, but I don't think it should deserve number five. Um, no, it's just the way that the ranking system works. I can definitely see how this story could be retold and has been retold, particularly in a Western scenario. I could definitely see cowboys yeah. and Indians doing this. I haven't seen Magnificent Seven, and I'd like to, but yeah, it's it's very adaptable. Yeah, 
That said, like, I appreciate that it started as a Japanese film. Because... Yes. We've seen this, like, and I'm glad this was the original, because we've seen this every way from Sunday a thousand times, right? The story, yeah. Yeah. But to see it in its original form is refreshing to me, to know that this is where all those came from. It's, like, good. Like, it, <laughs> I don't know why that's satisfying to me, but it is. Mm. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Go watch it. It won't disappoint. Okay. <laughs> Like, seriously, go watch it. Go watch it. Oh, you'll have a hell of a time finding it, though. Oh, yeah. that We had a real hard time trying to find this. Like, we we usually find it on, on Stan, which is, like, Australian version of Hulu. Um, it's not on Netflix. It, we couldn't even get it on Blu-ray at, at the video store. This is why we need Blockbuster. I, I, I've said it a lot that I miss Blockbuster Brenton, because... Brenton really misses Blockbuster. <laughs> I do, because not every movie is on Netflix. There's fuck all on Netflix, to be honest. And even if you have subscribed... You have to be subscribed to every one of these damn streaming services to be able to have access to every movie. And Disney's going to be having theirs by the end of this year. You've got Amazon, like I said, Hulu and Stan and Netflix and... Uh, I just want to be able to go to the video store and rent out a movie for a dollar like I used to when I was a kid. <laughs> Long story short, we rented it from YouTube. For four dollars, yeah. We couldn't even find it illegally, which, I'll be honest, we did look because we were curious. Um, usually we do it through our streaming services or I have quite a lot on my Blu-ray. But we could not find this movie. YouTube so, was the only place that had it. Good quality, full length, relatively good definition. As good of sound as you can get for how it was recorded. Good job, YouTube. We have been Danielle and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on all the socials and comment on SoundCloud. And until next week, thanks for listening. In the beginning, they're setting up the problem, basically. So they've got a problem, they needed a solution, and they're doing everything. Nah, this is fucking stupid. I don't need to say that. Okay. <laughs>